Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 18. And Episode 18 was a little bit different format. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As you heard in the episode, as I expressed the fact that it seems like we are now kind of telling the same story over and over again because there's so many false witnesses against Jamie Snow at his trial that they're all kind of starting to blend together. And so that was one of the reasons why I brought Tammy Alexander on the show with me to kind of help tell a little bit more of the backstory, but also to kind of change the format up a little bit. So I hope you guys all enjoyed it. I am joined today, as always, by Mike Bussing. Hey, Bob. And Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. So you guys have a lot of questions. We have some things we want to discuss, so let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into the questions, I want to ask you guys, what did you think of Bruce Rowland and what Tammy had to say in this episode? Well, I, I guess, Zach, the, I'd like to hear what you think first. Um, I know you said you listened to the episode a couple times already. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's getting to the point with these witnesses that it's the same thing. You know, you're hearing the same thing over and over again and how they're all they're all lying. You know, it's, right. it's getting to the point that it's really frustrating in this case to see this continue. And And the one thing that I was thinking about that I was actually thinking about when I was listening to this was if you take any one of these witnesses like Bruce Rowland and you do believe him. Then you have to throw out everybody else. Right. You know, or if you take Gutierrez and you believe him, then you have to throw out everybody else. Uh huh. You take Martinez and you believe him, you have to throw out everybody else. Well, that's the crazy thing about it is you're exactly right. They don't line up. But it, it, instead, it seemed to have the opposite effect on the jury mm-hmm. where it's like none of their stories could work together and none of them, each and every one of them can be proven false. But it's like they if they take, but they the only way they could get that conviction is to consider all of them. Like there's just so many, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. There's no, so really many was. of them. It really was, you know. And and you say that, and I think that was kind of the the big selling point to the jury of this case. You know, you mentioned it a couple times in the episode of how could this jury possibly see through all of this and decide that he's guilty? 
And I think the the big thing that I come to reason with, and I don't think it's right at all, but I think it's the fact that we as citizens want to believe that the police are correct, mm-hmm. want to believe that the prosecutors are doing the right thing. And even if all these puzzle pieces might not seem like they fit to us, maybe you know we're trying to feel like oh well they fit you know somehow they see that they fit but we don't see that they fit right they're the police they're the prosecutor they're the good guys yeah and and i think that's it is maybe these jurors at this time period cuz this is early you know early 90 well actually this was late 90s at the time of the the trial it was 2001 2001 so early 2000s mhm you know maybe there just isn't enough jury education maybe that's something we as as individuals can promote a little more which which has nothing to do with this episode per se but is that jury education of, of trying to really see the facts? Well, that, I think it has to do with our mission in general. And I think that that's something that we add to criminal justice reform on top of our, what we do here. It has layers. And obviously the, the main layer is working on the cases of the individuals who we're trying to help mm-hmm. currently Jamie snow, but there's a bigger picture to it. And a lot of it is not only jury education, um, but just education of people in general, you know, back in 2001, wrongful convictions weren't a thing that was in the public's eye. That's true. You know, every once in a while, you know, there was, you know, the, you didn't have the the presence of the innocence projects like you do now. Social media uh, was in its infancy at that point, if, if existent at all, actually, in 2001. But so, you know, when people are listening to podcasts like ours and podcasts like Undisclosed and, and so many others that are out there, I think that people are aware that it, if if nothing else people are becoming aware of the fact that the state both prosecutors and police officers are fallible mm-hmm. that they're human beings and they can make mistakes and they can be dishonest because i, th- I that has to be kind of exactly what you said it has to be a big part of this conviction is the fact that even though none of it really made sense the jury is just believing that you know the why would the police have this guy up here mm-hmm. and why you know this, this this witness if they didn't believe him and if they believe him maybe I should believe him yeah and why do we have so many witnesses even if the pieces even if these witnesses the puzzle pieces don't fit together they have so many witnesses that there's got to be something here and I think that's a huge part of it too is like I said that death by a thousand cuts it's I think if you put any one if you had Danny Martinez on the stand he means nothing. Mm-hmm. Gutierrez means nothing. Bruce Rowland means nothing. Travis Gaddis, who actually didn't testify, but w- would have meant nothing. Ed Palumbo's testimony. None of it means anything. Mm-hmm. But it's when you have all of them together, and, and I fully believe that was the state's strategy. They knew they had shit for a case against against Jamie Snow. Oh, oh and by the way, they didn't come out in trial because it's not allowed to, and I don't think we mentioned on the episode, but Bruce Rowland failed, I think, two polygraph tests. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was polygraphed about his testimony and he failed it. Oh, geez. Yeah. And so, again, you know, when we talk about the corruption of the prosecutor, the corruption of Charles Raynard and Tina Griffin, they knew 100 percent they knew Mm -hmm. that this guy was lying. Yeah. They absolutely intentionally and knowingly elicited false testimony in the fact that it was the very basic and provable was the fact that, you know, Tina Griffin had direct contact with him in 94 and then elicited out of him to testify that he had never had contact with her before 99. Mm-hmm. That was obvious on its face. But then you look at the polygraphs, that's harder to argue because polygraphs aren't entirely accurate. 
But so they took a guy that they knew his story was changed. They knew that they had given he had given Charlie Crow a statement back in '94. That statement and police report is disappeared. We have no idea what happened to it. But whatever it was, we do have the letter from Bruce Rowland afterwards apologizing, like, sorry, I don't really have anything for you. Mm-hmm. So he obviously told him some version of a story that was worthless. They knew that. They knew that they that he failed a polygraph. And then they still put him on the stand as as a credible witness. And it's 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 disgusting to me that yeah. they're doing this. I've got some questions about him too. So in the episode, they talk about the jacket. And I don't know if we have questions, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. No, go ahead. We talk about the jacket and how Susan had pawned this jacket. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it almost sounded like he was acting like he had talked to her. Yeah. And that seems strange to me because I don't know where that connection comes from. I, You know, I asked Tammy Alexander today before we recorded if there was actually a relationship between Bruce Rowland and Susan Powell or Susan Claycomb. And she said to her knowledge, there was not. Uh, but there may have been. But yeah, that's if you didn't catch what he was saying, he was saying that he was talking to Susan mm-hmm. and she was trying to sell him this brown leather jacket. Yeah. And and so she told him she got this brown leather jacket from Jamie Snow. And then later he heard that she had pawned the jacket, which is that someone's feeding him information. Mm-hmm. And he's quite frankly, I think, isn't smart enough to to figure out how it all fits together. And he's trying to throw, I use this example over and over again, but it's Jesse Miss Kelly. It's Jesse Miss Kelly from the West Memphis three case, trying to take the information that's been given to him and trying to construct a narrative that will make sense, but doing a terrible job of it. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't a, you know, Gutierrez didn't see a brown leather coat. It was a black leather coat. And Martinez didn't see a brown leather coat. He saw a brown spring jacket, Mm -hmm. you know, none of it, none of it actually fits together. And his theory is even more absurd than the original theory of, you know, someone murdered Bill Little over $90, essentially. Right. So now his theory is he murdered him over $40 and a pack of cigarettes. Well, really, it was over a pack of cigarettes. That's even more absurd. Yeah. His, his story is, to be clear, you know, if, if you didn't if you didn't catch it all and just kind of, I guess, to recap it, is that on Easter Sunday, Jamie Snow has a house party, goes to a house party at his... Buddy's house, Brian Whitmer, who, by the way, is not his buddy, doesn't like Jamie. And is not home. He's in jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes to he goes to Brian Whitmer's house to have a house party on Easter Sunday and decides, I'm going to walk down to the gas station and try to get a pack of cigarettes for free. And then the the attendant, obviously, won't give him the free cigarettes. So he goes back to the house, thinks about it, and says, nope, now I'm going to go kill him and take it. Now, don't you think? And this, if there's jurors listening to this, please consider this. If you didn't then, don't you think that if he's taken it to the point of now I'm going to murder this man over cigarettes, that he would have taken more than one pack? I mean, I mean, first, again, there's there were zero packs missing. There was an inventory done. So nobody took a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. According to to Bruce Rowland, then he grabs 40 bucks in cash. Well, if he just grabbed a carton of cigarettes, it would be worth more than 40 bucks. Maybe. Depending on, yeah, 91, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but grab a couple. I mean, you could, you could grab an armload. It would be, there would be more value in grabbing an armload of cartons of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. If that was the motivation for Jamie Snow to kill Bill Little is a pack of cigarettes, to grab an armload of, pack, uh, of cartons of cigarettes 
than it would have been to grab the which was ninety seven dollars, mm-hmm. but you know Roland thought it was forty dollars out of the drawer. The whole thing just makes absolutely zero sense. But the jury, I say the jury bought it, but really we don't know if they bought it. Yeah, and and that's the frustrating part to me, right? So the so the I have to believe the jury. I mean, a lot of this information didn't come out of what he was. He wasn't cross examined very well, but the jury, even if they they see him his testimony and decide this guy's lying. He's full of shit, but they still convicted anyway. And so all I can think of is, well, they must've believed the other ones or again, that preponderance that, that, that taking account all of these witnesses together, Mm -hmm. but I wish they would have seen his testimony and seen how ridiculous it is and thought for a minute, why is the prosecution using this guy? Mm -hmm. Like to me, that would, you know, 2019, Bob, would see that and it would be immediate red flag. It's like, uh, you know, on Bob and Weave, we talked about Bigfoot one in one of our episodes. Yeah. And you were talking about that Todd Standing documentary. Yeah. And I, I said that on there where you're like, you know, some of the stuff seems really legit. There's other parts where it's pretty clear that it's fake or maybe he took a video from a zoo. Mm-hmm. And what I said then is, is the same thing I would apply here, which is if they faked one part of that, to me, now I don't believe any of it. It's a good point. You know, there's no reason if you have legitimate evidence, whether it's a Bigfoot documentary mm-hmm. or whether it's a, a criminal trial, if you don't have a strong enough case that you have to manufacture, create evidence and lie, then I, I don't believe anything you're saying now. Mm-hmm. The, the credibility of the entire trial is out the window. And that's where I think the jury missed the boat. I cannot believe I have to believe the jurors were intelligent enough to see through a lot of what was said at that trial. A lot of these witnesses, a lot of the supposed evidence. But with that being said, they still believed that Jamie was guilty based on the the sheer volume of evidence. And at this point, do you know if his past history was ever brought up in court to the jury members? I don't think so. Usually, it, usually that does, is not allowed to happen until sentencing. Okay, because, it's possible. I have to go. I, have, I haven't been through all of the transcripts because that's just another thing in my head that could sway them. Is like, you know, he's already been convicted of things, even though it's not the same thing. He's already been convicted of things. And you put that in their head of like, well, this guy's already, quote, unquote, a bad guy. Right. And these, quote, unquote, good guys are telling me he did it. Right. I guess I need to believe them. Well, they they sneak it in, though, in certain ways, like Bruce Rowland. So, you know, and again, there's usually what they call motion limiting before trial that says you cannot discuss these previous offenses. Because it will bias the jury against the, you know, the finders of fact for this case mm-hmm. and the evidence in this case, but they get it in when Bruce Rowland's testifying and saying, "Yes, he confessed to me while he was in prison." Yeah, in 1994, and Ed Palumbo saying he confessed to me on the side of the road, and then I heard it in, in prison. And you know, one after another, these guys, all these jailhouse informants. The jury is understanding that this guy has spent some time in jail and prison, mm-hmm. at least that much. Yeah. But I just really wish that the jury was able to see, able to use the questions that I know they must have had to question everything. Because I think that, you know, as I said in the, in the episode, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to make a shift here because it's, it, it's the, to this point, it's just the same story over and over again every week because – it's every single piece of evidence, every single witness against Jamie turns out to easily be disproven. And we just keep doing it over and over and over again. And so I have to believe these jurors had to see through something. Now, a lot of this was withheld by the by the prosecution. 
There were Brady violations galore. There was prosecutorial misconduct, in my opinion. So they didn't, I guess, have all of the information, but I still think they had to question some of this. But still, with what you said earlier, they have that bias towards mm-hmm. the police and the prosecution. And that's, I, I think, if Jamie Snow was tried in 2019, in the culture we live in now, where there's all these innocence projects and exoneration projects and all the podcasts and documentaries, making a murderer, you know, all the, all these different documentaries that are out there and all this media to be consumed. I think the education level, getting back to where you started with this, is so much greater now than it was in 2001. I think that if Jamie Snow was brought to trial today, he'd be acquitted, hands down, because because that bias isn't there anymore. I think people tend to sway the other way now. The majority of people have a distrust. Yeah, people are almost looking for it now. Like, right. Even when it may not be there, they're looking for it. Right. And it's not just the wrongful conviction stuff. I mean, it's the it's the the epidemic of unarmed black men getting shot to death by white police officers mm-hmm. and you know the in the, the list goes on and on and on and and a, and a lot of that's just you know the media too the way the media is portraying it all the stuff that's legitimately happening on top of this stuff the way the media is portraying it and the media is showing us anytime something like that happens they're showing it to they're putting it in our putting it in our faces so we see it along with all the media for, around wrongful convictions i think you know yeah, exactly. There's 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 definitely a bias the other way where now people are looking in distrust at law enforcement much more so than than they used to do. So I think I, th- I think Jamie gets acquitted in 2019. Uh, unfortunately for him, his trial was you know 18 years prior, and and hopefully we can get some new evidence up in front of a 2019 panel of judges uh, that can overturn this thing. All right, this first question comes from Jimmy. And this one really relates to last week's episode more so than this one. He says, is it possible that Jerry Gutierrez should be our main suspect? I feel his numerous stories and involvement in the narrative is just someone trying to steer the investigation and ensure they never looked at him. His car was there to hide the drawer, and his return to the scene is just to give them a red herring of the leather jacket guy. I realize I'm giving him credit for being smart enough to plan out this deception, but I just cannot shake this theory. I don't know. What do you think, Zach? We talked about this a little bit last week. I think you're trying to give him way too much credit. That's my honest opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think he's a suspect. I don't I don't see any reason why you'd commit a crime and then go back to try to sway that. If, if you, especially a crime of this, like this, it's not some super sophisticated thing. Like, yeah. you're trying to do it and get the hell out of town. It happens, though. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for a suspect to interject themselves into an investigation. I just have a hard time seeing it on this one. I really do. He seems awful eager to talk to police, but that could be looked. I I don't know. Really, I just I just really don't know. I find the specificity in his early statements odd. Mm-hmm. The eight twelve one is the one that really gets and and uh, and also on the fan page. I think he put the question on here, but it was real long. Uh, but Wendell Mass, who's a longtime listener, and he's always got a lot of good input on the fan page on Facebook studies linguistics and he, I think he mentioned that a lot of the specificity that we're seeing in his statements could be law enforcement, but you know, them writing down, you know, it's not an actual word for word statement mm. of what he said, Okay, but like he's saying something and then they're writing it down. But still there's, even with that, even though the words, the linguistics we're trying to pick apart maybe are not his actual words. Mm-hmm. The information still is. 
the you know things like my buddy weighs 160 60 pounds but he just gained two pounds so now he weighs 162 or you know that mm-hmm. weird stuff i'm sure he said that i'm sure the police didn't write that just pick that up you know one way or another he said it but the, the one that's always stuck with me is i know it was 805 when i got to the gas station because i got home at 812 mm-hmm. so the murder happened pretty close to there i mean i mean it was what 821 so you know when when uh pilo's getting on scene but but that jumped out at me early we talked about it early not so much as a suspect but it's like why is he so specific mm-hmm. but if he thinks that it was if he thinks it was 812 or whatever to me that just seemed like somebody saying nope Here's my alibi. At eight twelve, I was somewhere else. I know that for a fact. That bothers me, but but I don't disagree with you that it's like he could have literally just drove away and never come back, and no one would ever know he had anything to do with it. It's and it's again, it's hard to find the motive without any kind of personal connection to Bill. Yeah, that that's that's difficult to figure out a motive there. Why would he kill him? But then again, he's got a history of theft and robbery, so. In my opinion, if I was an investigating officer, which I guess we are that version of that right now, to me, Jerry Gutierrez is a person of interest. You know, I'm not I'm not prepared to say I think he's a suspect, but something doesn't add up with him. I can give you that. I'll agree with that. But I think I think saying that he went back to try to mislead the police is just giving him too much credit for what I feel like we know of him. Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. and 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 you could very well be right. Kathy says, for the life of me, I cannot see how Bruce Rowland had any credibility with the jury when he couldn't pick Jamie Snow out in the courtroom. If I had been on the jury, I would have wondered how he could look at pictures and identify him there, but not in person. And Jamie supposedly confessed to this guy. What the whole thing tells me is that Bruce Rowland was shown pictures of someone that the police investigators told him was Jamie, and he identified them on the stand, but had never met Jamie before, so couldn't identify him at the defense table. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that, to me, that's pretty obvious. Two things. One, it's pretty obvious that was the case. Clearly, he had been shown those pictures before and told that was Jamie Snow. Mm-hmm. And clearly, he doesn't actually know Jamie Snow. And, he, and and that's what I said earlier. I said, I think the guy's a fucking idiot. Is There's one defendant at the defense table. Right. Yeah. Like, really? You can't just take a guess? You know, maybe he couldn't he, because they were all wearing suits. He wasn't sure which one was the lawyer. It's the guy in handcuffs. Yeah, the guy in the guy in the striped suit sitting at the table is probably him. You know, but I'm guessing he must have been wearing a suit. Some states allow you to, you know, dress up, and some states don't. Yeah, I, I've seen it where they they definitely will change their appearance. We sat in on a trial. It was a murder trial, and they had a very similar to this where the witness knew the suspect the witness really knew this i mean they had proof that he knew him right and they went through and he says is the is so-and-so in the courtroom and he says no i don't see him and he goes oh wait there he is he goes you look different yeah you know i mean that they cut his hair they put glasses on him they did you know so uh-huh. i'm not saying that that's what happened but i could see they do a lot of things like that with, with right the suspects so the def- let's say let's not say suspect and say defendant yeah shine him in their best light and mm-hmm. stuff but yeah they always want to try to make them look better you know make look good to the jury mm-hmm but no one's accused and Jamie of changing his appearance during this trial. No. You know what I mean? I mean, is, Bruce is the only one that couldn't pick him out, mm-hmm. as far as I know. It, obviously, they let him wear plain clothes. You know, I was I always think it's so unfair when um, Wisconsin, you know, if you watch Making a Murderer and watch Stephen Avery at his trial, he's sitting in his trial in, like, what you'd see, like, the burglar wearing in, mm-hmm. in, in like, old 80s cartoons, like a black and white striped 
jumpsuit with handcuffs on during his trial. That's the guy who did it, you see? Yeah, right. That's, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, to me, I would hope the jury would pick that up. again. Like, okay, he knows what the picture looks like, but he doesn't know what Jamie Snow looks like who's sitting mm-hmm. right there. Clearly, he doesn't know him, and the whole story is BS. All right, this one's from Tammy. Is it possible to confirm or not that Bruce Rowland and Jamie Snow were not incarcerated together when he claims Jamie confessed to him? Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you go on our website and look under the case docs for this episode, all of the docs are up, uh, including, as I said in the episode, we put the closing arguments up there. But we have the, actually the in, included in there, I believe, is in, in, in that clump of files, is the uh, incarceration reports. And, and, so, and so essentially, Roland is saying... Jamie was in there around April, June, whenever it was in 1994. And we have Jamie's records of when he was in the prison and he was in the prison when he was just being moved around on a writ. It wasn't until December until he was there. And he was only there for a week or two during that short period of time. So, yeah, I mean, we have absolute proof that the time that Roland said he was in the prison with Jamie, Jamie wasn't there. Although I I do believe that Roland was still in that prison in December, but, but there's some other timing issues there too, which I I don't, I can't piece together off the top of my head right now with when first contact was made, when he wrote the letter to Tina Griffin and somebody, Tammy, I'm sure will correct me if I'm wrong on the fan page on this. I don't take my word on this, but if I'm remembering correctly, when Roland wrote the first letter to Tina Griffin about Jamie Snow It was like in the summer of 94, and up to that point, Jamie hadn't been incarcerated with him yet. The meaning of your tracking this, you got Roland in the summer of 94, writes a letter and says, I have some information about Jamie Snow. Six months later, Jamie Snow is actually in that prison in SEG for a short period of time. We don't have the report from when he spoke with Crow, but what I'm guessing is this is my theory, a hypothesis, whatever you want to call it. I think that Roland heard from other inmates some of these Jamie confession stories, you know, from Ed Palumbo or whoever. And he writes a letter, says, I've got information. And he, Crow comes down and gets his notebook out. And Bruce Roland says, so I heard from fill in the blank that Jamie Snow confessed to them, at which point Crow closes his notebook and says, well, that's pretty useless for you to tell me you heard from somebody who heard from somebody, whatever. You know, I think it was something like that. And in 99, when he's trying again, I'm pretty sure that Katz and Barkus figured out when the two were in prison together to see if there was ever an overlap. And that's when he comes up with a new story. But I think in his original statement in 94, the one where he's apologizing because he didn't have any good information, the reason he didn't is because he hadn't actually been in the same building as Jamie at that point. All right, Jessica says, Jerry Gutierrez stated he heard about a problem at the Clark Station and went to let police know about the suspicious man he saw earlier. Is there a way to check when the murder first made news? It seems unlikely the story would have been on radio or TV that quickly. I, I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't know at this point if we'd be able to find that information. But you have to also understand, in a small town like this, it's not unreasonable for it to be on the news that night. So so I don't, whatever time their news aired, you know, news is different now. We've got the 24-hour cable news channels. 
and you know they'll break in more than they used to. But back in the day, you had there was like the the eight o'clock, you know, the six o'clock news, the ten o'clock news, the eight, whatever times they were. So I guess we could find out that. But they they would also, I guess, break in on the local networks. But what I was getting at with the with the small towns is, and I know this from being a firefighter in a town not too much smaller than this town, uh, than Bloomington, is the reporters for news papers, for radio, for the TV news, all listen to scanners. And these aren't, it's not a high crime area, you know, similar to what we have. So when, whenever we would have a fire, by the time we would get to the fire, you know, we'd put it out by the time I'm coming out, all the news reporters were there because there's nothing else going on. They hear there's a fire. They all jump in their trucks. So we come out and there's cameras everywhere and there's news reporters with, with notepads and everybody's making a story because they're trying to fill story time in every single, you know, news broadcast. So I think it's I think it's very reasonable that there would have been at least something on the radio that something's going on at the Clark station, especially radio that's happening in real time. Uh, I think it's it's very reasonable that they'd hear the scanner traffic, they know something's going on, and they might say something's going on at the Clark station. There are police cars and ambulances at the station. So I, that could have happened pretty close to immediate. My thought on that though is is we would need to know what time the news came on and what time he went back to the station to talk to police or went back to to talk to police mm-hmm. because even if it is live there's no cell phones at that time so these reporters would have to get there figure out something's going on and then get to a phone or go back to the station to relay the message so i mean there's right. there's a lot of time elapsed there as, as far as how long it would take before they could actually get it out yeah i think radio radio is what i think is probably when gutierrez if gutierrez's story is legit mm-hmm. i think it probably was the First version, which was radio, okay. In, in the seven minutes that it took him to drive to his house, <laughs> right? I yeah, mean, it's just uh, the whole thing's kind of yeah. yeah. That yeah, that's that's true. But the, the what I what I mean by the radio is there's a newsroom, and the Mike and I actually got to go to the the radio station in Bloomington where they had the big newsroom. Yeah, that's right for the Susan Show. Right. Yeah. And, and so in that newsroom, which is in that radio station, there they I promise you. I guarantee you they're listening to police scanner traffic. So that's, I think, where it happens quick because because the radio is is live at all times, 24-7. So there's somebody, okay. there's a DJ talking, whether they're just, whether there's a, a show on or they're just, you know, between songs, whatever it is. So as soon as somebody in that newsroom hears, oh, something's going on at the Clark station, they're going to send somebody down there, but they'll also hand a piece of paper to the guy in the booth or the gal in the booth and they'll say, okay, well, you know, breaking news, something's going on at the Clark Station on M- Empire and Linden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got we got crews on their way there, but there's police there and ambulance and everything like that. So it could happen really quickly. But still not before he got home. True. Because the call didn't go out till 821 if he's home at 812. Yeah, very true. Yeah, unless, unless he's listening to the radio at home. All right, Dean says, when you say that the witness testimony changes the profile of the killer, I am not sure it does. Witness testimony is unreliable, which is why you are getting bogged down. To me, the key here is the no sales. The first one has to be related to the robbery because it's not a common thing to do. There's a 10 minute gap between that and the second no sale. And even if there are two different perps, that would be between the last two no sales. The time regardless suggests this is personal. That is actually a really, really good point, Dean. Um, You actually kind of make me feel better about things a little bit because this is I've been pretty frustrated with myself over what I think that our perceived or, or, or initial theory really seems to be falling apart. So 
essentially, if I understand stand him right, what he's saying is forget Gutierrez, basically forget all the witnesses. Because I do think the witness st- t- stories and testimonies are all are, are are jacked. They don't fit together the way we think they fit together. Something's happening other than what we think happened mm-hmm. with the witnesses. But if we take the evidence that we do know that is provable, all we really have is the register tape. And you're exactly right that you have a no sale, which is not common. There's no no sales anywhere else on that tape. A no sale at 806. And then a no sale, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the times right now, but it's, it was 8, 12, something yeah, like that. It was 8, 12 or 8, 13, something like that. Yeah, and then another one at 8, 15. Those three no sales, we can't say absolutely. That first one, we can't say the 806 no sale absolutely has something to do with the robbery. But I think it is definitely a fair assumption to say it probably does. And if, it, and if, that, and if all three no sales are connected to the robbery, then you're exactly right. It does still say personal. It does still say something started at 8.06. It continued on until 8.16 when he pressed the, the silent alarm, and then he wasn't shot for five minutes after that. Our time span is still the same, and really it's that time span that profiles as a personal cause homicide. So that's, that's a really, really, really good point. Leslie says, despite the fact that many great people have already worked on this case with no luck, do you think you'll be able to find relief for Jamie as you go on with the active investigation? How confident are you that you can shake something loose? Like Tammy said, this information weighs on us and, quote, just makes you want to cry. What insights can you begin to share about how we can be impactful? To be honest with you, I really don't know. I'm, I, I began this case very confident. I'm still confident that we can shake something loose, but it's gonna, it's, someone's going to have to come forward with information. You know, what, what we found throughout the course of this investigation is the lack of physical forensic evidence is going to make this really, really, really difficult to solve without a new witness coming forward, without someone coming forward with, with new credible information. With that being said, Jamie's defense is working on, they've been fighting for for a long time to get some forensic testing done because there is stuff that we can do. We can, we can test, you know, I, I've suggested to Tara Thompson that we use the MVAC methodology to test Bill's clothing. This is technology that wasn't available in the nineties, but you know, if, if, if Bill's killer in any way, shape or form grabbed a hold of his shirt during any kind of altercation, you know, threatening him or whatever, that person's DNA will be on the shirt. Uh, and there's some other forensic testing that can be done. But to to be honest with you, I think that without a big break in this case, we probably will be wrapping up this season of Truth and Justice on it at the end of the year here. So which is about a month from now. Now, as with all of our cases, that doesn't mean that you know we're giving up on the case or we're going to stop investigating. We'll continue to do so, and we'll come back with updates as they as they come along. But I, I've just decided I, I don't think it's worthwhile at this point for us to continue to go through every single witness and prove how they were lying and how they're you know Jamie's innocent. I think I think I would say most of you, if not all of you, are, are pretty certain at this point that Jamie is innocent. So we need to move into the new investigation. But we need leads for the new investigation. 
I think that's exactly right. You know, and they talk about seeing if you can shake anything loose. And I think you actually have shaken a lot of things loose. You've had people reach out. The problem is all they've helped you do is unweave the web. Right. They haven't given you a new direction. That's a really good way to put it. So, you know, our process is usually investigate the original investigation to determine if a wrongful conviction occurred. Mm -hmm. And I think we've done that in Jamie's case. I think that anybody that had any doubt prior to us starting this season of the podcast, I doubt that they have any doubt left anymore. You know, Jamie Snow is innocent. I will stand by that 100%. But then the next phase is the new investigation, and we just have to have something to investigate. And you're right. Everything that we've shaken loose, new witnesses that have come forward, well, most of it, because I'm about to next week, we're going to get into some pretty interesting stuff. Um, But uh, most of what we've had with people coming forward have been, you know, people proving to me that someone, another witness lied at trial. Mm -hmm. You know, and we've got people writing, writing affidavits. We've got, there's a lot of new information coming out that's going to help Jamie in his case, but it all has to do with basically proving that he didn't get a fair trial, that there was false testimony against him. There were Brady violations. There was, um, you know, due process violations ineffective assistance of counsel. But for Bill's sake, we need to prove who actually killed Bill. And and that's that's where my focus has been really for the last several weeks, several a couple of months is is trying to figure out where that new information could come from. And coming up next week, I'm going to share with you. I told you guys a while back that I had a tip that had come in that I wasn't sure was relevant. Now I think it might be and I'm going to share that information with you guys in next week's main episode. And this may be the tip that could actually shake something loose and solve the murder of Bill Lilly. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruffruth. And you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. 
For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram, at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.